With that said, I'm ready to dive in today to our next uh, series, actually, a brand new series we're kicking off today uh, called Soul Care. Soul Care. And this series is all about how do we cultivate uh, a healthy soul or care for our soul in the midst of an ever-growing and complex world. Now, this is a personal passion area of mine. Many of you know this, but before I came into church pastoral work, I was a psychologist predominantly with youth and adolescents. So the topics of mental health and caring for your soul is a personal passion of mine. And we actually see in the scriptures that the, the word of God has a lot to say. In fact, kind of our theme scripture for the, the series is out of Matthew 16, 26, the words of Jesus here. He said, what do, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? It's pretty strong words. You, you, you can have immense success at work. You can have so many degrees in your life that you have the entire alphabet behind your name. Come on, somebody. And some of you do. Just don't put that on your Gmail. It's awkward. Okay. You, you, you can have a lot of money, but you can lose your soul. And, and Jesus is speaking to the priority of the soul. And the reality is we live in a world where there are pressures upon the soul. There are stressors upon the soul. Have anyone ever experienced stress at work before? Financial stress, relationship stress, parenting stress that, that stress our souls, that are a weight upon our souls. You know, the World Health Organization last year published a study that over the course of the pandemic, Levels of anxiety and depression increased by 25%. Of course, you know, many of you may not know this, but during the pandemic, they were saying we're having a mental health endemic. That rates of anxiety and depression, the CDC published that substance abuse and overdose rates increased over the course of the last several years. And uh, in fact, CNN last year, towards the end of last year, they published a study that said nine out of 10 Americans said that our country is currently experiencing a mental health crisis. Uh, but I, I go back to the words of Jesus that say you can gain the whole world. We've progressed in a lot of ways in our culture, haven't we? But you can lose your soul. So we're gonna talk today, how do we, how do we care for our soul? This whole series, how do we cultivate a healthy soul? It won't come naturally. The tides of our Current culture may not lead towards a healthy soul. Uh, in fact, even now with our smartphones, uh, how many know it can get even harder? Because you can face stress that's happening around the, across the world that years ago we wouldn't have faced. Uh, so how do we, in the midst of all of this, cultivate a healthy soul? And today, I want to talk about a topic that can be a very heavy weight upon the soul. And that is the topic of shame. Uh, specifically what psychologists call toxic shame. Uh, there's debate on some degrees of shame can be healthy or, or adaptive, but it's not about toxic shame, maladaptive shame, destructive shame. And we're going to look about how do we get free of shame? Because let, let me just give you sort of the thesis statement of the, of the message. Jesus did not come to put shame on you. He came to take shame off you. In fact, today's message title is Shame Off You. Shame Off You. That's what God has for each and every one of us. 
But let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we thank you as we open it up today. God, we just posture our, our hearts, our minds, our spirits to receive for what you have for us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dr. Kurt Thompson wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. He's a Christian psychologist. He said this, shame is the feeling of not being enough, not measuring up, of not being worthy enough. Now, guilt and shame can seem similar, but they're different. What guilt does, and guilt is most of the time, guilt is adaptive. It is healthy. It, is, it actually produces positive fruit in our life. Guilt can. Of course, there's unhealthy guilt. But guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. You see the difference? And let me just say this off the bat. That understanding of shame that I am wrong, that is a lie from the pit of hell. You are not wrong. You are not inadequate. You are more than enough. In fact, you are so worthy. The Bible says this, that even in your sin, Christ Jesus died on the cross for you. When you are living in rebellion, you're saying, God, I want nothing to do for you. He says, oh, my son or daughter, I'm going to die for you. Love that we can't even fully comprehend. But shame is, can cause destruction in our lives. And shame can be induced by, by many things. Shame can be induced by maybe we grew up in a household where we felt like the love in the household was conditional upon our performance. We can have shame because we were bullied about something when we were a child. In fact, the research shows most shame is induced or introduced at a young age. Uh, how many of you know this shows how evil the, the devil is? He comes for our children at a young age. That makes me, I thank God for our children's ministry. Right now, they're speaking words of life over our kids. They're praying over our kids. Hey, parents, your words have power over your children. Speak the word of God. Speak words of life. Pray over your kids. Most shames introduced when we're young, and it can be over, you know, it uh, can be over as well as an adult, over an overly critical boss or teacher. Um, it can be by a mistake we've made that we haven't forgiven ourselves of. In fact, a common form of shame for Christians in the church can be sin. So the fact is you have breath in your lungs. It means you're a human. It means you're imperfect. That means you may have some imperfections in your life. You may have some sin. And what can happen in context of church sometimes is we can feel shame over that. And can I tell you, God does not put shame on you for your sin. He came to take the shame off. We're going to get to it. It doesn't want to leave us there. But, but I want to be clear about, about God's intention in our life when it comes to shame. But, but shame can, can be destructive in our lives. We all probably have faced some degree of shame. I want to read out of John 4. Uh, this is uh, Jesus having a moment. And to give context to where we're going to read today, a few verses out of John 4. Jesus had just had a conversation with Nicodemus, a Jewish Pharisee. Of course, many of you know this, the, the, the moment where he, of course, has the exchange, and he says, you must be born again. He says, for, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world or to shame the world, but he came to save the world. Aren't you glad? And then in verse chapter 4, he goes to a town called Samaria. Samaria. 
So we're going to pick up verse four. It says this. Now he had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of a ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired. Anybody else just ministers to you that Jesus was tired too? Come on, somebody. He was tired. He was from a journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy some Chipotle. This little Jeremy International version right there. Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I want to share with you three truths, uh, three points from this passage. And here's the first one. Uh, if you're taking notes, if you're not taking notes, write this down. Is that shame is destructive. Shame is destructive. Shame will distort our perception of ourselves and others. Um, anybody else in the room, you're, you're, you're as old as me, or you can remember this. This is how old I am. I remember back in the day when you took pictures, you had to take the film to the pharmacy to have it developed. Anybody else that old in the room? Come on, somebody. <laughs> and then I remember, come on, anybody else, when digital cameras came out? Game changer. It's like, because, you know, if you took it to the pharmacy and then you got the pictures back and you realized the whole role was bad and now you have no memories from your vacation. That was painful, right? You're like, oh, family vacation gone. Some of you don't know that pain. You don't know that pain. You don't know that pain. That's why when my kids get older, I'm going to have them have a, a film camera and dial up internet. Come on, somebody. I'm developing character, not comfort. All right. Get a little AOL dial up. Y'all don't know. Some of y'all know that pain. Then if somebody called while you're getting on the internet, cut you off. Y'all don't know. Y'all don't know. Uh, I'm getting distracted. But I remember then too when the iPhone, you know, you could take pictures on your phone. Like, it's like, okay, we're a big deal now. Like, we can take photos on our phone. But see, back in the day, they didn't have filters. So if they... If a photo was posted online, what you saw was what you got. Nowadays, we got filters upon filters upon filters upon filters, right? You meet someone online, you meet them in person, you're like, how'd you get those 30 pounds? Hey, bro, where'd your hair go, right? Oh, I had a filter. Listen, stop using the filter. Write that down. Stop using filters, okay? We, we need to see what we're going to get, you know what I'm saying? I don't need to stop with this. It's, 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 it's deception. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, it kind of is. But it, these filters distort the photo. Shame distorts your perception of yourself to where you start seeing yourself as less valuable than God sees you. It distorts your perception of others to where you presume things upon other people that they're not actually thinking about you. So the first thing, this woman, here comes Jesus full of grace, full of mercy, his kindness, his love. I mean, this is Jesus. He's gentle. And she says, how are you a Jew? Talking to me, a Samaritan. 
What does she do? She focuses on their race. Here's why this is important. Samaritan in Jewish culture at that time was a derogatory term. So you called someone a Samaritan as an insult. And most Samaritans, or many Samaritans rather, were mixed race, which in that culture, it brought shame upon. So Samaritans felt shame. And then she was a woman. And in that culture, women had less social and economic value than men. On a side note, I don't know about you, but I love that our Jesus, if, if you were to write this culturally with cultural expectations, you would presume that Jesus would show up to a Jewish man. But he shows up to a woman who would have been outcasted for her race and her gender and her class. Don't you love Jesus? But his disciples come back and they have problems with the fact he's talking to a Samaritan woman. They're like, Jesus, you, you see her color? You see her gender? He's like, yep, and I'm trying to root out the prejudice in your hearts. Come on, somebody. I love God. So he, he came to this woman, but she, saw, she was focused on her deficiencies. Shame distorts our perspective. Shame is associated with low self-worth and low self-esteem. The University of Toronto in 2009 actually found shame is associated with higher levels of clinical symptoms of depression. Baylor University, one year later, found that shame is associated with clinical levels of generalized anxiety disorder and social anxiety disorder. That shame is often, what's often associated with shame is self-medication. We self-medicate the pain that shame causes. So let's say, for example, you feel inadequate. And that feeling, that thoughts of inadequacy lead to feelings of shame, which then you become a workaholic or you overextend yourself because you're trying to prove your worth. Can I encourage someone in this room? Your worth and your value has nothing to do with the degrees behind your name, with your, le your level of position in the organization. Your worth is in the eyes of God and nothing and no one can ever change that or take that from you. But this is how shame works. Or the pain of shame, you numb with self-medication of, of possessions or alcohol or food or narcotic. Can you pick your drug of choice? Shame is destructive. And then it distorts our perception of others. There's a phrase in shame research called internalized other. Here's what it means. It means we presume that others are thinking about what I'm ashamed of. So this woman, she focused on the fact that he was a Jew. Now, to her credit, she probably had Jewish men mistreat her more than likely in that culture. But she, she, was, she was looking at, at that aspect of him. So what, what, what internalized other means is this, is that we presume, let's say, for example, you didn't get the job you applied for. And internally, maybe even at a subconscious level, the presumption is I didn't get the job because I'm not good enough. Or, or that person breaks off the relationship with you and that shame that you felt over one of the physical qualities about yourself and you assume, oh, it's because I'm not attractive enough. That's why. And we presume things. This is how the enemy works. And here's, here's the ultimate destructive aspect of shame. Ready for this? Shame leads us into hiding. She was at the well at noon. No one was at the well at noon. It was the heat of the day. 
sun bearing down. Women came to draw water from the well in the cool of the evening. So Jesus coming up in this moment, seeing her, this tells us she did not want to be at the well when the town gossip Susan was there. Come on, somebody. If your name's Susan, I didn't mean you. Unless you're gossiping, stop that. But she didn't want to be around the other women. Because they would have been talking about her. Or at least she presumed they would be talking about her. She was hiding. Reminds me of, of our, our children. We, uh, all three of our kids, we, we potty trained. More accurately, Christina potty trained and I just drafted along. I'm like, go, you got this. No, no but, but, but our kids, I remember one of our children in particular, when they were in the process of being trained to go on the, on the toilet and they were in pull-ups, if they were to go into, if they had an accident, they would hide in the house and try to clean it up themselves. I won't go into any more details. But what happened? Because they didn't meet a certain expectation, they took as, I made a mistake. And you can almost see it sometimes in kids to where you, they start, and this is how the enemy works, de-internalize, I am a mistake. So we'd go to them and say, hey, listen, it's, hey, it's okay, it's okay. Let mom and dad, let dad get that. And then we'll move forward. And the same happens for us. Sometimes it can be social withdrawal. Like maybe for you, the fear of rejection, the shame of not being enough may cause you to not go to a party or an event you really want to go to, but you're afraid of the social consequences that might happen. Or you're, you're because of not feeling enough, because of maybe what an ex did or said to you, that you don't put yourself out there again romantically because you're afraid of being rejected. Here's how the enemy wants to work in your life. He wants you to internalize rejections. You presume rejection before you ever even take a step. So you don't apply for that job because you assume, well, I won't get it. I'm not good enough. You won't launch the business because you presume, well, I'm not smart enough. Are you following me, church? This is how the enemy steal, kills, and destroy. We're revealing his cards today. Is he wants you to somehow think that you are not enough, you don't measure up, you're a mistake, and that is a lie from the pit of hell. So you will hide yourself. One last thing I want to say about it. Maybe you don't fully hide all of yourself. So you show up to the events. You come to church. You join the community group. But there's a part of you you reveal to no one. Some of you have been in church your whole life, and, and, and people know 90% of you. There's that 10%, though, you won't let anybody else know. And here's the lie of the enemy. If they knew about that sin you struggle with, they'll, they'll reject you. If they knew that you struggle with clinical anxiety, they won't accept you. If they knew what you did in the past, they won't welcome you back. Another lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. But he wants you to internalize. And we have to intentionally cultivate. Because here's why. Listen. If we never fully reveal ourselves to anyone, we always will feel rejected by everyone. 
because there's a part of you you've told no one about. So you presume that side of me is rejected. I'm not good enough. I don't measure up because of this part of me, which is why we must be vulnerable. We're going to get to that part. I know first the point one was heavy. The good news is coming. Are you ready for the good news? Some of you are like, why did I come to church today? Let me give you this quote first by Brene Brown. She's done a lot of research on shame. She says, shame loves secrecy. And the most dangerous thing you can do after a shaming experience is hide or bury our story. When we bury our story, shame metastasizes. Here's the good news. Write this down. God removes our shame. God removes our shame. Jesus walked right up to this woman at the well in the midst of her shame. He didn't walk up and see this woman at the well and think, oh, let's go to a different well. If she's at the well at noon, you know what that means, fellas. We'll get off of the next stop. But Jesus came right up into our shame. If you get nothing else out of this message, get what I'm about to say out of this message and write this down. God already knew, we're going to see in the scriptures, God already knew everything about her. In fact, at the end of this exchange, she says, come meet the man who knows everything about me. Okay, write this down. God knows everything about you and he still loves you. He knows every wicked thought you've had. He knows every bad thing you've done. He knows every mistake you've made. He knows every mistake you're going to make. He knows every wicked thought you're going to have. And he still loves you. And he still sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for you. His mercies are new every morning. His grace is sufficient. He loves you with an everlasting love. This is the good news of the gospel. That he comes right up into her shame. He's like, Daughter, I know everything about you, and I unconditionally love you. The love of God, the gentleness of Christ Jesus. Psalm 34, David writes this. I prayed to the Lord, and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. Watch this. And no shadow of shame will darken their faces. David writes this after experiencing public shame. But in the presence of God, he says, no shame will darken my face. Can I tell you, the presence of God relieves the pressure of shame. Because in the presence of God, you're fully accepted. In the presence of God, you're unconditionally loved. In the presence of God, you experience more than sufficient grace. In the presence of God, you're forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. Can I tell you, the presence of God, or sorry, shame cannot exist in the presence of almighty God. It can't. Because here's a God who knows everything about you. The things nobody else knows. And he loves you. Loves you. So much so, he sent his son down a cross for you. The author of Hebrews says this, looking to Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand on the throne of God. 
So what do we have to do? We have to turn away intentionally from shame and turn towards Jesus. We have to turn away from those shame-inducing thoughts and turn towards the truth about who we are in Christ. Dr. Kurt Thompson, the author of Soul of Shame, said this, the parts of us that that feel most broken and that we keep most hidden are the parts that most desperately need to be known by God so as to be loved and healed. Can I encourage you in this room? God already knows everything about you. So a question I asked myself this week, which I ask, I, I ask you to ask yourself, is have you ever been honest with and processed with God about your shame? The Bible says you can cast your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. Psalm says, cast your cares upon the Lord or your burdens, and he will sustain you. To be honest with God so he can bring healing into your heart. Then verse 16, they move beyond small talk. Like, hey, how's the weather today? Yeah, it's hot, I know. And verse 16, he says, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. Uh Uh-oh. And the man you have now is not your husband. Big uh uh-oh. What you've said is quite quite true. But here's what I want you to read, not read into the tone of Jesus, because Jesus in this moment, what he does, he says what he says not to condemn her but he confronts her dysfunctional pattern of shame. Because of her shame, because of her internalized rejection, she went with man after man after man, a dysfunctional pattern of relationships. And he's confronting it. I want you to hear this. Jesus never confronts us to condemn us. He always confronts us to free us. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. He's not bringing condemnation upon her. Can I just encourage someone in this room? God is not condemning you for what you did. He is a loving father desiring to set you free. So in this moment, he's confronting her dysfunctional pattern of relationship to get at the root of her shame so he can set her free. Oftentimes, the sin patterns in our life are actually the symptom, whereas the root problem is much deeper. And in her case, shame. She was self-medicating with relationships. Failed relationship after failed relationship. Probably the very thing she feared, she, she feared which was being rejected, was the very thing she was producing in her life. Because shame. And can you imagine this? Probably after every failed relationship, more shame. In that culture, it's one thing to have shame over being divorced once. It's a whole other thing to have shame after being divorced five times. Here's how the enemy works. He wants you in your shame to get caught in a dysfunctional pattern so he can heap on more shame. So you keep going down deeper and deeper and deeper. That's about deep I can go. Um, He wants you to be 
weighed down with shame. So you feel shame over that secret sin no one knows about. And then out of your shame, you do it again, more shame. You do it again, more shame. Send your way down with shame. Or, or that struggle you have, you tell no one about, so you keep not telling anybody. And the longer you don't tell anyone, the more you think to yourself, I cannot tell anyone. Because now it's not a 12-week problem, it's a 12-year problem. And what, what are they going to do to me if I tell people at church that I've had this issue for 12 years? And I'm on the greeting team. You're going to face the love of God. That's what you're going to face. The grace of the Lord Jesus because we are the body of Christ. Amen. But this is how the enemy works. So he confronts her in her dysfunction to set her free. And God wants to address your dysfunctional patterns of shame. That dysfunctional pattern of you not feeling enough, so you feel shame. So even though you know God's calling you to launch that business or write that book or apply for that job, and you know that you haven't because of the shame that's holding you back. Or you haven't put yourself out there in a romantic relationship because of the shame that's holding you back. He wants to address the dysfunctional patterns or the dysfunctional pattern of how your inadequacy is making you feel shame, which has turned you into a workaholic. And you can't turn your work off and you're putting a strain on your relationships, including the most important ones. God wants to set you free from your shame to break that dysfunctional pattern so you can experience a life and life more abundantly. Jesus came to give you. He wants to set us free, church. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 11, he says this, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She goes on to say this, I want this water. Like, like Jesus, is it coconut water? Because I want that. Is it Gatorade? Got a little electrolytes in there, Jesus? Is that what it is? But living water in the Old Testament was symbolic for the word of God. Living water in the New Testament is symbolic for the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. Here's what living water is. It's both word and spirit. The word and the spirit work together. The word of God affirms your identity. The spirit of God leads you into your destiny. So she had been caught in this dysfunctional pattern of shame. And, and how do we practically, Jeremy, how do I drink of this living water? Well, Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, Paul says this. Let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature. Created to be like God and truly righteous and holy. Anybody else you wish when you came to Christ, like all your sin went away? Right? Maybe all of your roommate's sin went away. Come on, somebody. All your spouse's sin. Like they got Jesus, but they, they still angry. They got Jesus, but I got Jesus, but I still got this struggle. Now, some things God can take away in a moment, but oftentimes it's a process. Paul says, you got to put on your new self. And how do you do it? You let the Spirit of God renew your thoughts and attitudes. What I love about scripture is that today there are common, even in the world of psychology, there are common therapeutic modalities 
that actually just affirm what God said years earlier. Here's one. I have an image on the screen. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, do we have that image, team? There it is. So cognitive behavioral therapy, it was a modality I used when I was a psychologist. It was uh, one that I've actually been the recipient of in my own counseling. Maybe if you're in counseling, more than likely you've been a part of this because most therapists, psychologists, counselors, social workers have been trained in CBT. Here's the essence of CBT, that your thoughts, emotions, and behaviors all interact with one another. So what we think affects how we feel and act. What we feel affects how we think and act. And what we do affects what we think and feel. So here's the basic premise of CBT, that, that your thoughts and your feelings and actions, they all influence each other. And, and the, the most likely recommendation, if you want to break a dysfunctional pattern in your life, so let's say your dysfunctional pattern is you, feel, you, you think that you're not enough, so you feel ashamed, so you self-medicate with alcohol or you self-medicate with dysfunctional relationships. If you want to break that pattern, the most powerful way to break that pattern is to change your thoughts, i.e., Reference Ephesians 4.23. Let the Spirit of God renew your thoughts and attitudes. What does the Bible say in Romans 12.2? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I forget who created CBT, but the real author is King Jesus. Come on, somebody. Like, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change your thoughts. Change your life. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. If, if you overwork, you overextend yourself, you burn yourself out, you push yourself to exhaustion, you have workaholic tendencies, and the root of it is, the thought life is, I'm inadequate or I don't measure up, so you feel shame, therefore you work too much. You must change the thought that I am more than adequate. I am enough. My values on what I do. It's in who I am in Christ Jesus. And listen, it won't happen overnight because some of you, listen, write this down. Some of you have built habits that are ingrained over the past seven years. So don't think they're going to go away in seven days. It might take some time. I don't say that to, to gloom and doom. I just say it to be honest with you. It might take some time to unwire yourself a little bit. But let the Spirit of God renew your thoughts and minds. So what thoughts induce shame in your life? Maybe the thoughts that I'm not enough. How about you renew your mind with Psalms 139, 14, and 15? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Or maybe I will never measure up. John 1, 12, I'm a beloved child of God. Jeremiah 31, 3, I'm loved with an everlasting love. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, 14, I am completely forgiven. Ephesians 2, 10, I can, I can do, sorry, I am God's workmanship. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Romans 8, 1, I am free of condemnation. What do you do? You renew your mind with the truth of the word of God. You keep reminding yourself, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm a beloved child of God. I'm completely forgiven. I'm loved with an everlasting love. His grace is sufficient. His mercies are new every morning. When you begin to get those into your spirit, it will begin to change you and set you free from the shame that will bind you. That's why it's called the sword of the spirit. Wield that sword. Get a little fencing in. 
expand your repertoire of skills. Kick the devil in the face with the truth of the word of God. Say, devil, I am more than enough because I'm a beloved child of God. No, I will not always have the struggle because who the sun sets free is free indeed. No, I will not carry the shame about my past because my God says I'm completely forgiven. My God reminds me I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, not dependent upon my righteousness, but his righteousness. No, I'm fired up because I have been weighed down by shame in my life before. And I have been set free as well by Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, he came to set us free and not just free for a moment, but free indeed. And what did he say as well? You will know the truth. What truth? You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What truth? You're a beloved child of God. What truth? His grace is sufficient. What truth? His mercies are new every morning and the truth will set you free. Know the truth. Years ago, an area that I had shame over in my life was in the area of uh, my physical attractiveness. I was always a, a heavy set young man and I had some shame around that in my life. And then I had a failed relationship in adulthood, which I then internalized, which I don't know this, but I internalized was due to my physical attractiveness. So when I came to Christ as an adult and I read Psalms 139, 13 and 14, where David writes this, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. That verse transformed my life. David wrote this with a little bit of Holy Ghost swag. Come on, somebody. He said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, O oh God, in me. He had a confidence. It wasn't a false confidence. It wasn't arrogance. He knew who he was in Christ. Someone needs to hear this this morning. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You might see your blemishes and imperfections, but when God looks at you from heaven, he says, marvelous is my work in you. Let that sink in. He doesn't see your imperfections. He doesn't see that thing that you always see. He sees you as his marvelous work as his perfect craftsmanship. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's masterpiece. Let that truth just saturate your spirit and your soul. So I did what a, what a mentor told me to do. He said, he said, if you want to renew your mind, this is practical. I, I think it's to help somebody here today. He said, go ahead and speak out the message, speak out the verse to yourself every day for 30 days. And if it feels like the lie is no longer has a grip on you, then stop. But if it still feels like it's still there, do it again for another, another 30 days. So every day for 30 days, I would tell myself, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, oh God. I know them full well. And I would tell myself that. I would speak to myself. On a psychological level, you know why it's so powerful to speak something out? Because if you just read something, you're only activating one sense. If you speak it out, you're activating three senses. So you're more likely to remember it. Therefore, when the lie of the enemy comes, it says, I am not enough. No, 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 player. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, oh God. Get behind me, Satan. I added that one at the end. It's biblical, though. God removes our shame.
And here's the last one, last point, is then we experience healing through vulnerability. Now, I'm going to be honest with you right now. So, say surprise some of you, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually an introvert. If I own like scales, I am introverted. And I am task-oriented. So, if I were to write the Bible, which I did not, clearly, I would say, all you need is you and Jesus, and you good. Any other introverts, you wish that was the case? Come on, somebody. It's okay to be honest in church. But it's just not biblical. God created you to be vulnerable in community. And listen, some of you in the room, you're an extrovert. You're already signed up for eight groups. So I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to my people right now. My introverts. Like you're like, Pastor, I'm good with coming to a church service. But a small group of people? Pushing, you're pushing it, Pastor. Too, too far. Can I tell you, if that's you, you are exactly who needs to get into a community group. And extroverts, allow the introverts to talk some, okay? So, but the reality is God created us. So share this vulnerable moment with Jesus. Just come see a man who knows everything about me. And he still loves me. Here's what James 5, 16, if you've been around Catalyst, you know this scripture. James says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so you may be healed. That word healed means you'll be set free, emotional healing, freedom. That, that God desires, that, listen, you experience forgiveness when you confess your sin to God. You experience healing or freedom when you tell somebody else. If you have never done this, it will be highly uncomfortable the first time. It's like going to the gym for the first time. Any of us first remember when you lifted weights, right? You thought you were going to die, right? But you're better because of it, right? You're healthier. You're better. Can I tell you? It might be highly uncomfortable for you to, what we call here at Catalyst Church, take off the mask. But it may be the very thing that brings the most pronounced healing to your heart. You've been weighed down by shame and God wants to set you free. Years ago, I was a part of a church and I was in a community group. I had just joined a community group. I was after service in the, the, the sanctuary and I saw one of my fellow group members across the, the room. So I went over to him, having like small talk. And then I don't know how it got there, but it got there. But all of a sudden I found myself confessing a secret sin in my life. I had been going to church Worshiping God passionately on Sunday, but feeling great shame on Monday because of this area of my life. I remember thinking to myself, I can't tell any of these church people about this. They're going to kick me out of that church. Just to encourage you, if you are a human, you have a struggle. Uh, we all have struggles. I told this guy about it. You know what I heard? I had conjured up in my mind I would hear from somebody. You did what? Get out of here. Can I tell you? Quite the opposite. What I heard was, me too. I struggle with that too sometimes. We prayed for each other. We supported each other for the next couple years. And I can, can I tell you, we both walked free from that sin because of our relationship. 
This is why we have community groups. We have 37 groups that are launching next week that I'm, I'm encouraged you to sign up for. This is why we have them. Not so you would read a, a new book or just read more of the Bible. Oh, that's great. And we want you to do that. Not so you would try a new restaurant. Not so you would try a new activity. Hike on a new trail. The reason we have groups is for this primary reason. That you would make a friend. That you could say, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's something I have never told anyone. And can I tell you? Actually, let me show this quote by Brene Brown because you'll experience this here. She says, if we share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, watch this, shame can't survive. Do you know what you're going to experience at Catalyst Church in a community group? Empathy and understanding. You know what's going to happen? Shame can't survive. Because you're going to, you thought you would hear, you did what? And you're going to hear probably either me too, or I've been there. Let me pray for you. I'm here for you. Empathy and understanding. She then went back to her hometown and she became an evangelist. She told her entire town, come here about this man who knows everything about me, yet he still loves me. This man, Jesus. One of the things the enemy wants us to, to, for us to believe, the one last lie I'll reveal from him. He wants you to think that you're past. For some of you, you're present. Maybe you're right now stuck in a cycle of sin. You have a struggle. Maybe you have some, something, you're feeling like I'm inadequate. Maybe something right now. He wants you to believe that whatever that is in the past or the present has some, somehow disqualified you for God to do something great in and through your life. But can I tell you, the truth is the exact opposite. It's actually your past mistakes or present mistakes and failures that actually qualify you for God's grace. What did Paul say? It's in my weakness. It's in my deficiencies. It's in my imperfections. His strength is perfected. His grace is sufficient. I close this story before I pray. That same church where I experienced freedom and healing. I was serving on a team where I prayed with people after service. And one Sunday, this gentleman came through and he shared his story. And literally like everything he had struggled with was what I had struggled with. And I, I just got free. Like I was, I was freshly free. And I thought to myself when he shared, I can't help this guy. I just walked through that. How am I equipped to help him? The next thought I had, I had which I knew was from the Lord, was Jeremy. Never be ashamed of what I have done in your life. Set me free. And can I tell you, listen, God took a source of my misery and he redeemed it into great ministry in that man's life. And can I tell you what God wants to do for so many of you? All of us. 
He wants to take that area of your life that you feel shame over, you feel broken over, you feel like, how could God use me? How could God use that? And he says, my son, my daughter, it's that very thing that qualifies you for my sufficient grace. And it's in your weakness my strength is perfected. Jesus did not come to put shame upon you. He came to take shame off you. Bow your heads with me, church.